This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Chosen this text this evening somewhat in conjunction with the uh, passage that we looked at uh, earlier today uh, in terms of construction of the temple and the giving there, but this one is a little bit more broad, just looking at this whole subject of money and our relationship to it, its relationship to us, and what we're to think about it. I want us to read uh, chapter 6, the end of verse 2 through uh, chapter 10. We're actually going to concentrate this evening on verse 6. Paul writes to his protege Timothy, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray. Father, we come this evening to the Scriptures hungry to hear from You, hungry for Your Word, to know You, and to draw near to You. Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would lead us and teach us, help us to worship You in the study of Your Word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Wednesday night, Kevin Skinner, former chicken catcher, won the America's Got Talent competition on the strength of his voice and his ability on the guitar. The prize for winning that competition was a headline show in Las Vegas, as well as a million dollars. You know, after the fact, I was thinking about that and even talking with one of my children about that and what it would be like to come into that kind of money. Of course, it won't be quite a million dollars after he settles accounts with the IRS, but still, an awfully lot, an awful lot of money. And you think about what it's like to suddenly have that much money come into your life. And uh, you know, I think, well, what, what will happen to it? What will happen with him? What will he do with that money? Will he manage it wisely? 
Uh, will he bring much good out of that money? Or will that money become uh, a problem to him? Or will that money quickly slip away? We're familiar with uh, stories of winners of the lottery who suddenly come into vast amounts of money and find that far from being the joy they thought it would be, winds up being a curse as people, relatives, family, friends are after a share of the money. Uh, the money can bring all kinds of problems. It changes relationships. Uh, and if they're not careful, they can find that the money is gone before they know it. Part of the difficulty in, in such a situation is someone uh, coming into such a large amount of money and they have no idea how to handle it, what to do with it. Very different from someone who has maybe built themselves up to that point from nothing and learned to manage and handle money and what to do with it along the way, but to suddenly find yourself a multimillionaire. Well, maybe you're thinking, that's a problem I'd like to have. Uh, and certainly there would be an upside, but we don't want to lose sight that it can be a curse as well as a blessing. Or professional athletes with multi-million dollar contracts who end up broke with no money. Because money can be slippery. We can mismanage it. Thieves can steal it. Inflation can attack it. Uh, our mistakes, uh, circumstances outside our control, that may cause us to lose it. But you know, even among those who have amassed or come into great amounts of money, managed to keep it, managed to handle it well, even they may come to find themselves not quite as happy as they thought, that the dream uh, is shattered by the reality, and the reality doesn't quite live up to the dream. After all, money can't stop cancer, pay for treatments, but it can't prevent or stop cancer. Money cannot necessarily stop pain in relationships or divorce or heartache with children or even boredom in life, even despair. Certainly money can buy comfort, it can buy convenience, but it really is true, it can't buy happiness. Now, there are two ways to be wealthy, it said. One is to gain more, and the other is to want less. But you know, those two aren't mutually exclusive. God may bless us with much more than we thought we would ever have, while at the same time, by His grace, making us willing to be content with far less than we might have. Well, in our passage here, Paul talks about this situation, talks about how we're to view money as Christians, what we're to think, uh, whether God has blessed us with much or with not as much, what we're to think about our money, how we are to relate to it. Paul essentially gives us this, this in the form of an equation, X plus Y equals Z. Now, anytime we start using letters instead of numbers in equations, I start getting panicked. It's a reaction from high school, perhaps. Uh, but it sums up what Paul is doing here in verse 6. Now, there's great gain in godliness with contentment. Now, I like the ESV. I think it's a, a very good translation. But I, I, I much prefer the NIV here. It says exactly the same thing. It just says it in a more felicitous and memorable way. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It says it like it's a proverb, which I think it was. 
Godliness with contentment is great gain. So what I want us to do this evening is just to look at these terms Paul uses, each part of that equation, and how they add up to a to true wealth, to what the Bible would consider to be true wealth, regardless of your bank balance. First thing he mentions here is godliness. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Godliness. That's one of those terms that occurs in the scriptures that we recognize has to do with behavior, with how we live. It sort of fits into a circle of words like righteousness or holiness and godliness. Uh, Jerry Bridges has used uh, that term in a title of his. You know, an early title of his was The Pursuit of Holiness. He later had a book called The Practice of Godliness. But are those terms that are changeable, holiness, righteousness, godliness, we sometimes use them that way, and yet there are some distinctions if you want to be precise with those words. Holiness has to do with being different, being set apart, being distinct from. Uh, For example, God himself, of course, is the ultimate in holiness, and God is certainly set apart from his creation for any number of reasons. He's the creator, the creation, his creatures. He is holy in terms of his purity, in terms of all of his characteristics in a way that we certainly are not. And even, we're familiar even in the Old Testament with things being holy. For example, the priest with his headband, it says, holiness to the Lord which means that he is set apart as the, as the high priest. He was distinct from the people as the representative of God. So holiness, fundamentally, has this idea of being set apart from. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, can talk about the children of believers. Uh, if their parents weren't, if even one parent wasn't a believer, neither parent w- was a believer, they would be unclean. Paul says because at least one parent is a believer, they are holy children. Now, you might not know that from the conduct. That's not the point. The point is they're set apart. God views the child of a believing parent, and certainly parents, differently than he does children in the world. So holiness, or being holy, has this idea of being set apart, which combines with the idea that we're set apart to God, so we live in a holy way. But only after you have the idea of being distinct from the world, then there's that ethical idea of our behavior come into play. But fundamentally, holy holy means set apart. Righteous has more of a legal or judicial sense to it, or uh, moral rectitude. Uh, you do what's just. You do what is right. Uh, or to, as the Bible might say, to walk uprightly, which doesn't mean we're up on our feet. It means we behave in a way characterized by integrity, uh, by honesty. Uh, righteousness has to do with that mo- sense of moral rectitude, what's right. Uh, then we come to the word godliness or godly. Now, what does that come from? Well, it should be fairly obvious. It means that we are like God, that our behavior resembles that of God himself. Now, as we talk about God in ways that we are like God, the ways that we are godly, um, it sometimes helps us to go back and think about those two theological classifications of the attributes of God, his incommunicable or non-communicable attributes, ways that God is different from us in ways that are absolute. We don't imitate him. We can't be like him in those ways. For example, uh, God's infinity 
it, it separates him from us. We, we're not infinite. We can't be. We have a beginning. We won't have an end by his grace, uh, even under his judgment. We won't have an end in hell, though they wish they would, I'm sure. Uh, but we had a beginning point. God never began. He always was. And his being itself is infinite, limitless. God is not limited in ways that we are. His uh, aseity or his self-existence is a way that God is different from us in a way we can't imitate or share or reflect. God has existence in himself. You and I do not. Our existence is derived from God. We exist because God wills that we continue to exist. God has given us existence. He's given us being. But God himself has being in himself. So these are some ways... God is different from us that he does not communicate or share with us. But there are other ways that he does. For example, wisdom is a, an attribute of God that we share much more dimly, not perfectly. But you and I, uh, even in God's common grace and certainly by his special grace in Christ, can act in ways that are characterized by wisdom. We can make wise choices, wise decisions, and reflect the wisdom of God, not completely, but certainly truly. Or knowledge, God knows things. Um, certainly know, he knows exhaustively. You and I don't, but we nevertheless can know things. Postmodernism and skepticism to the contrary, we can truly know things and rely that those things are accurate and they fit with reality. And so we talk about God's incommunicable attributes. Uh, he's immutable. He, he doesn't change. You and I do change. Uh, but also his communicable attributes, ways that we are like him. And some of those include holiness and righteousness, not perfectly, but certainly truly. And so to be godly means to be like God in these different ways, reflecting him, imitating him. Specifically, the way that plays out, for example, might be in our obedience to the law of God. Think about Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. When God gives these commandments, he is giving us not just a standard to live by, but he is giving us a snapshot of himself, of who he is, of what his character is like. You know, the Bible prohibits bearing false witness. Well, as, as, as we tell the truth, we are imitating and reflecting the character of God, who cannot lie, but is truth itself. And so in all these ways, for example, uh, not committing adultery, but, but having faithfulness in the covenant of marriage, we are reflecting God's faithfulness as a covenant-keeping God, who will never betray the commitments to us that he has made. So one way that we're godly is in our obedience to the law of God, or more broadly, the word of God. The scriptures, of course, reveal God's character to us. Another is, as by God's grace, we grow, for example, in the, in the, in the display of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, in Galatians chapter 5. Any way that we reflect what the scriptures teach, we are behaving in a godly way. So let's come back to our text here. Paul says, talking about this situation, he says that godliness with contentment is great gain. But what does he start with? Godliness, character, being like God. That, dear friends, is wealth far beyond anything this world can afford. 
Now, the world and its value system might laugh at that. But in fact, that's where Paul starts. Not with what you have, but what you are. And insofar as your character, your life, your thinking, your speech, your behavior, what you do, what you don't do, reflects the being and the character and the attributes and the law and the word and the grace of God, you are a wealthy person. Godliness. The second thing, then, that Paul adds to that is contentment. Contentment. Contentment, in short, is being able to say, enough. I have enough. Well, my circumstances are enough. Uh, Contentment, Paul mentions, in addition to godliness. Um, Paul goes on, actually, to elaborate on this, this, this problem of the opposite of contentment, which would be essentially greed, uh, we could flesh that out. Uh, it could be agreed, expressed in grumbling or complaining because we don't have what we think we want or we feel like our circumstances are unfair or not right. We're greedy for better, easier circumstances. But Paul addresses this specifically as it, results to mon- as it uh, relates to money. Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You know, this this desire, this greed, uh, this desire to be rich, when that becomes the controlling motivation of your life, it opens the door to many bad things. We're more liable to give in to temptations or traps, senseless and harmful desires that bring ruin and destruction. Paul goes on in verse 10 to say, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Often misquoted. Um, He's not saying money is the root of all evil. Even the love of money is the root of all evil. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. When we're compelled by that, controlled by that, it does make it possible for us fall into all kinds of things that can harm us, uh, certainly um, financially, certainly in the world, but above all spiritually. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. I was struck as I was reading it, thinking about that uh, in preparation for tonight, reading an article in World Magazine about a man named Mark Whitaker. Uh, Some of you may have read that. Uh, there's a movie coming out with Matt Damon playing Mark Whitaker called Informant. Uh, Whitaker was uh, president of a, of a division in Archer Daniels Midland, large agricultural conglomerate. Uh, at the age of 32, he was pulling in a seven-figure salary, 13,000-square-foot house, eight-car garage. Uh, pretty stunning, really. He finished his Ph.D. when he was 25. Uh, certainly a star on the rise, had it made, everything going well for him. And he realized that there was price fixing going on. Uh, and so he started to spy for the FBI. And as he was doing that, realizing that some pretty bad things could go down, even while serving as a spy for the FBI, he starts embezzling large amounts of money 
to take care of himself. In fact, he describes following the old Nigeria scheme, uh, that, that, that scam out of Nigeria, back before email when it was done with faxes. He did it. He, he went for it, and he lost $200,000, but he made up for it by writing him a check from Archer Daniels Midland. Uh, just put the money back, took it from the company. Well, uh, eventually he became uh, the highest level whistleblower in history. Uh, Archer Daniels Midland returned the favor by reporting his embezzling, and he went to jail for nine years, from the age of 40 to the age of 49. During that time, he, he well, even while all that was going on, he was attending a church, seemed to have everything together. But while he was in prison, he started reading scriptures and realized uh, how much he had missed and was missing and became a believer uh, and happily, and by God's grace, his uh, marriage held up during the time that he was in prison and is now out and is living a very different life. Uh, the Lord provided good employment for him the day uh, he left prison, the day after he was employed and working. But it is struck with, with what an example that is of, of what Paul is saying here when we're driven by money, how we open ourselves up and expose ourselves to fall for different kinds of temptation. Contentment. Uh, the problem is so much in our culture undermines contentment. Uh, that's, the, that's the whole purpose of advertising. Certainly it's to make a product known, but it's to cultivate a, sen- a sense of discontentment, that you can't be happy unless you have this product. Uh, the whole newer, bigger, better mentality, newer models come out. Bigger, better, cars, houses, whatever it might be. Now, obviously, uh, there are times when we may need a new car. There are times when we may need a new home, whatever the reason. Uh, but our whole culture uh, is geared on this idea of consumption, that, that, that we need more, that we need bigger, that we need newer, that we need better. Well, how do we gain contentment? We gain godliness through the grace of God, using the means of grace to grow in, in Christ-likeness and godliness. Uh, look over at Philippians chapter 4. Paul talks about this, this whole matter of contentment. Philippians chapter 4. Familiar passage, Steve, I'm sure, but it's Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What an astounding passage. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Boy, I wish I could say that. I've learned when I'm stuck in traffic on I-85 or Peachtree Industrial Boulevard to be content. Can you say that? No? You know, I've learned when I'm sick to be content. You know, all of these different situations that, that, that you, maybe not you, I know I get irritated, frustrated, grumble, complain. Paul says, I've learned in whatever circumstance I find myself, whatever situation, to be content. Now, I think you've really progressed in the Christian life and growing in grace. When you can honestly say that. Now, we may catch ourselves, we may have to go back and remind ourselves uh, to 
exercise contentment. But Paul says, I've learned. But the encouraging thing here is he says, I have learned. How? Through being in want and plenty. Through being hungry and having abundance. Uh, and most of all, through the strength of Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's a great verse, and we quote it in different circumstances. But in its context, Paul is talking about the strength of Christ enabling him to be content. We might think, well, that's a small thing. That's a little thing. You know, I, through Christ's strength, I can die for my faith. Through Christ's strength, I can witness to a friend, which may feel much like the same thing. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about something so little and common and ordinary as contentment. And he says, I can do all things, including being content, whatever the circumstances, through Christ who strengthens me. Do you ever pray to Christ, Lord, help me to be content? No, we pray for healing. We pray for provision. We pray for deliverance. But do you ever say, Lord, keep me here as long as you want me here. Just help me to be content. I don't. I say, Lord, get me out of here. You know, beam me up. I'm tired of this. Okay, I've suffered now for a day. I've learned whatever it is you want me to learn. We can move on now. No. Did you ever pray, Lord, just help me to be content? Praise you no matter what my circumstances. That's what Paul is speaking of here. And we tend to talk about contentment in, in difficulties. Sometimes it's just as hard to be content when you are abounding. To be content when you're facing plenty, the challenge of an abundance. When you have plenty, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, And we need God's grace. We need God's grace to be content in a good and biblical way when we have a lot. When we and our children are healthy. When uh, employment never looked better. Uh, and there's good times as well. But some questions to ask uh, in this whole matter of contentment. Uh, the point is not that we divest ourselves of everything and go uh, live like paupers, but the point is, are we content? And before buying something, it's sometimes helpful to ask, do I really need this? Suppose I just said no to myself. Could I be content without this? Uh, can I really afford this? Or is there some better use that I could use this money for? Uh, or instead of buying it myself, maybe wait for a couple of weeks and just pray and see if the Lord provides it some other way. Uh, some questions to ask in developing this whole matter of contentment. Now, again, this is an equation. Godliness plus this attitude, by God's grace, of contentment equals what? He says it equals great gain. Now, Paul is picking up here. On some language from verse 5, talking about those who imagined that godliness is a means of gain. What is he talking about? Well, uh, possibly talking about people who think that if they live godly lives, then God is somehow their debtor and owes them. You know, Lord, I have my quiet time every day this week. How could you let this happen to me? That kind of thing. Possibly, but it's also possible that what you have here is something in modern terms we might describe as health and wealth gospel. You know, you follow Jesus and he's going to bless you with, with wealth. He's going to bless you with comfort. He's going to meet all of your needs. Everything's going to be perfect and easy and great. Uh, and that could be uh, what they were about. But that's why Paul then responds, well, if you want great gain, 
godliness is a means to gain as long as it's true godliness with contentment, not godliness for what you can get out of God. But you see, the Bible looks at wealth differently. True wealth consists not in stuff, not in fat bank accounts, but in godly character with this attitude of contentment. You see, people who are godly and content are not driven by lust for more, but by love for Christ. That's what motivates. That's what drives. That's what controls. They, re- they realize the truth of what Paul says in verse 7. We brought nothing into the world with us, and we can take nothing out of this world when we depart. But rather, as Paul says in verse 8, being content with the basics, with the necessities, as God provides for us and meets our needs, and, and delighting in whatever God may bless us with beyond that. But as Paul says, if we have food and clothing... Basics, the necessities, with these we will be content. These people are driven by love for Christ. Now there's an irony here, maybe even a paradox. And the paradox is this. It may be precisely these people who end up financially well off. It kind of gets back to the old Protestant work ethic of being diligent, of being frugal, of working hard, being careful with money. You see, the godly character makes us diligent. It makes us trustworthy. If you are a person of godly character, you are probably the kind of person other people will want to do business with because they know they can trust you, because they know that your word is your bond, because they know that you operate with integrity. And you're not out to tick them. You're not out to, uh, to take advantage of them. And so godliness... Uh, as a as a character trait, uh, maybe that you're they mean you're the kind of person uh, that does prosper, and certainly contentment. Contentment means this isn't the kind of person who's going to wind up racking up tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt, consumer debt with exorbitant interest. Uh, you're not the kind of person if you're content who's likely to lose a, mo- a lot of money on get rich quick schemes. And so the irony is that in your godliness, in your contentment, as God prospers you, you may well wind up uh, not just having the necessities, but a lot more besides, and able to do with money, the kinds of things that we talked about this morning. Certainly enjoying it, providing for yourself, your family, but also enjoying it through being a blessing to other people and being able to help uh, fund the uh, ministries that help expand the kingdom of God. And so it could well be that the person who, who, who's characterized by godliness and contentment finds great gain not only in the wealth of godly character and not only in, in the contentment in their spirit, but that God does begin to bless and provide for them and meet all of their needs. What's the alternative to contentment? It's discontentment, which means a perpetual state of dissatisfaction. Where's the joy? Where's the fun in that? This quote is attributed to Benjamin Franklin. Contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. Of course, that's all beside the point. The point is the love for Christ, pursuing Christ, uh, seeking the Lord and his righteousness and his kingdom. By the way, there are areas of life we should never be content with. Uh, our own growth in grace, where we are spiritually, our level of godliness, our knowledge of Scripture our walk with the Lord, how we love other people, certainly areas we should never really be content with. 
But when it comes to money, when it comes to material things, when it comes to stuff, Paul's formula says it best. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We all enjoy that great gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how Paul so simply but clearly puts this here. And we pray. Lord, I pray for myself, my family. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that our lives would be characterized by these two things, by godliness and, and by real contentment with what we have, with where we are, uh, with what we're going through. And Father, we pray that we might know that great gain, that true biblical wealth that Paul speaks of here. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.